Hey, let's go to Genesis chapter 42. Our journey with Joseph continues into another week. And just to jog your memory a little from where we left off last week, Pharaoh has released Joseph from prison. Joseph has interpreted Pharaoh's dreams. He has since predicted and prepared Egypt for an impending famine. That famine has hit, which has brought Joseph face to face once again with his brothers. And so we're going to pick up there in the narrative in Genesis chapter 42, starting in verse 7. God's word says that Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But he treated them like strangers and spoke, and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. So the famine is so severe that it has driven Joseph's family to seek food elsewhere than their homeland. So they have left Canaan. They have heard that Egypt has food. They've traveled there and they've ran into Joseph unknowingly. Joseph immediately recognizes his brothers, but he kind of hides his identity from them. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you're spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you've come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are Twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you're spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you. Or else by the life of Pharaoh surely you're spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. So Joseph has them all arrested and put in the prison for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. And they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. So now they're headed back to their homeland. Joseph has kept one of the brothers behind in custody, and they're discussing why they're having to go through this. And they've come to the realization they think that this is God's punishment upon their life for what they did to Joseph. And so as they're walking back, they're having this discussion. They're like, man, this guy's putting us through all this because of what we've done to Joseph all those years ago. In verse 22, and Reuben answered them to not tell you not to sin against the boy. Reuben's like, I told y'all to leave him alone that day. I told y'all we don't need to kill him. I told y'all we don't need to put him in a pit, but you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. And then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. He took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain, to replace every man's money in his sack, and to give them provisions for the journey. And this was done for them. And then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money 
in the mouth of his sack. And he said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? How many of you are bold and brave enough to admit, by a show of hands, that you're a crier? Any criers in the house? Tonight, I mean, you feel no shame or embarrassment whatsoever. You'll bust out in a tear so quick. Just me asking that question, you're almost on the edge of crying right now. You feel no shame, no embarrassment in public or private. It doesn't matter. You can be happy. You can cry. You can be mad and you'll cry. You'll be sad and you cry. You'll just cry. That's not me. I'm just not a crier. Always hated crying. Here's the main reason, though. Crying embarrassed me more than anything. I didn't want other people to know that I was hurt, whether that be physically. So go back to like your early playground days. You know, you're swinging on the monkey bars and you lose grip. You hit the ground, roll, knocks, that, knocks the breath out of you, and you're just like, <gasps> but I was determined. Like, you can feel the tears coming. I'm like, I'm not going to do it. All my friends are going to make fun of me for crying. Like, you tough it out, or whether it be, whether it be emotionally, I didn't want people to know that I was hurt emotionally. Like, I, I can remember just, if I ever got in trouble in class or something. Like, I was a rule follower to the T. And so if I ever got in trouble, my teacher got onto me or something, like I could instantly feel like my face flush because I was so embarrassed. I was like, I don't want to cry. I don't want people to know that I'm upset because I got in trouble and I'm embarrassed. And everybody's looking at me and they're going, ooh. I just, I hated crying. I didn't want to do it. My emotions, I just wanted to keep to myself. Didn't want anybody else to share in them. All that being considered leads us into our title for this message, which is this. It's okay to cry. It's okay to cry. After Joseph entertains this initial conversation with his brothers, look at what we see in verse 24. It says that he turned away from them and wept. Joseph's crying. And it's from this point on that his story takes an intriguing turn because we get to see the real, raw emotions of a man that's been through a lot come spilling out. We've seen Joseph keep it together through so much, it seems like. All the things that he's been through, the unfairness, the injustice, all these things, all these trials, these adversities, these hardships, these terrors, these nightmares that he's lived through, we've seen him keep it together, and he just kept serving and kept trusting and being obedient to whatever it was that God put him in, in whatever situation, and he's kept it all bottled up. But I hope it's never been lost on us, all that he has indeed been through. And we're talking about a man who had a cognizant awareness that his brothers wanted to kill him. Even though they didn't, they still tossed him in a pit, sold him into slavery, he ends up working for a man named Potiphar, whose wife ends up lying about him. He goes through at least two years of an innocent imprisonment after having his reputation completely ruined and dismantled by people who had no idea who he truly was in his character and in his integrity. And above all that, he's been abandoned by everybody that he knows and loves. 
And I can only just imagine the amount of homesickness that he felt in the process of all this. This man has been through a lot. As I look at all that stuff and I take into account all the things that Joseph has gone through, I can't help but think that there's, there's no way that somebody goes through all of that and not have some hurt, not have some trauma, not have some wounds, not have some scars, not have a, a breakdown at some point. But we haven't seen it with Joseph until now. Now we see that Joseph's been hurt. 20 years have passed since he last saw his brothers when they tossed and traded him. And Joseph's reaction to their appearing shows us the pain that they had caused him internally. Those 20 years didn't just cause that pain to disappear. It's still very much alive and active inside of his life. And so my question for us is, would we be willing to let God into those pain places of our lives as well tonight? We've all been hurt. We've all been wounded. We've all been traumatized. We've all been scarred by something or somebody at some point to varying depths and degrees. Every single one of us in here tonight brought with us some past or maybe present, pain, trauma, hurt, wound, scar that you still carry around with you right now. It's already on the forefront of your mind. But God shows in his sovereignty, listen, in his sovereignty, our pain doesn't have to be without purpose. Ever. And so I think God's going to take us through our pain moments tonight. And I know that's not always a fun thing, but I think it can be a freeing thing. And I do believe that God desires to liberate, hopefully, a lot of you tonight from some of the pain that you've been holding on to maybe for a long, long time. But you've got to open yourself up and be willing to let him in to those places, places that I know and I understand with good reason, we keep very, very guarded so we're going to pull some truths out of this, out of Joseph's example and Joseph's life. And the first one is this. When it, when it comes to the pain places in your life, you have got to stop faking with forgetting. Why is it that we try to act like the things that hurt us didn't? And then beyond that, why is it that we act like over time that either they didn't happen or it wasn't really that big of a deal. I think maybe for us, it's a coping mechanism. We try to convince ourselves that things that happened to us maybe didn't, or even if we're willing to admit that they did, that perhaps they weren't really as bad or as traumatizing or as hurtful or as painful as I make them out to be, that I just need to kind of move on and get past it. It's not that big a deal. I'm, I'm building this up in my head. Why is that we do that? I think it's a coping mechanism. I think it's us internalizing things for the sake of trying to protect ourselves. And I think it's one that maybe even Joseph tried. And I want to show you why I think this, because if we go back into chapter 41 and verse 51, remember Joseph's blessed 
with two kids. And the first one he names Manasseh. And he gives the meaning behind that name. Listen to what he says. He says that Joseph called the name of his firstborn Manasseh. For he said, God has made me forget all my hardship in all my father's house. But then when we jump down to where we started at tonight in the narrative in chapter 42 and verse 7, it says that Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. Hold on a second, though. I'm naming my firstborn son Manasseh for God has made me forget my hardships and all my father's house. Chapter 42, verse 7, Joseph recognized his brothers. Something doesn't exactly add up. I think I understand Joseph's sentiments behind naming his son what he did. The Lord has made me forget my hardship and all my father's house in the essence that Joseph said, God has helped me to move on from past things. But he had not forgot. You can move on, but not forget. Joseph had indeed moved on. God had brought him to a new place in life, but he had not forgotten the things that his brother had done to him. How many have heard the expression, forgive and forget? It's a cute saying, but it's 50% stupid. Forgive, absolutely. But the reality is we don't forget. Sure, we may forget small offenses or trivial hurts or traumas or pains, but we don't forget those that reach our souls. We don't forget those kind of hurts that cut to the deepest parts of us. Twenty years have gone by, and Joseph's life may have moved on, but he hadn't forgotten the pain. And how could he? Everything that he went through could technically be traced back to his brothers and their actions. The fact that he was stripped and sold, all the false accusations that he had faced, the jail time that he had served, the years, technically, that had been taken from his life, all that could be traced back to the actions of his brother. So how could he just simply forget? We don't forget what deeply wounds us. That's the fact of the matter. I still remember being called four eyes in third grade when I first started wearing glasses. It's fine, y'all can laugh. It's okay, like I, I've dealt with it. Can't you tell? It doesn't bother me anymore, okay? Like I got past that. It didn't cause me any kind of self-consciousness. Right? It's like I, I still refuse to wear glasses to this day, but that's not the reason why. I'm fine with it now. We worked through it. Four eyes are better than two anyway. At least that's what I used to tell myself, you know, coping. Some of you still remember being laughed at in the lunchroom. Listen, you don't forget an abuser. You don't forget a friend's betrayal. You don't forget the trauma and the impact of laying in your room at night when your mom and dad were beginning to go through that horrific, ugly divorce that ended up happening, you don't forget those things. They don't just pass you by. And yet those things happen. And so many of us 
internalize and suppress our emotions. We do our best to hide the hurt, in other words. So you know what I think about Joseph when I see what he named his sons and then I see how he reacted when his brothers show up? I think Joseph was an internalizer. But that's only going to work for so long. You know why? Because sooner or later, if anything, Joseph's story shows us this, sooner or later you're going to run into your pain again. It's going to walk into the same room with you. It's going to show up in the same city one day. It's going to be found in a random memory all at once when you least expected it. Sooner or later, you're going to run into this pain again. And this mechanism of, it wasn't that bad, or I'm over it now, sticks and stones. I can hardly even remember it anymore. It's going to fail. Why? Because minimizing the event doesn't minimize the effect. And some of us think, if I can just minimize what happened to me, it will then minimize how it is now affecting me. And it doesn't work. And it will never work. This moment for Joseph, it was him coming to grips with what happened to me, really happened to me, and it messed me up. His pain was valid. The flux of emotions that he is experiencing was valid. And perhaps for the first time, he's acknowledging all that. And he cried. For some of you here tonight, you got to stop faking around with this I forgot what hurt me stuff. Because that's not it. And the feelings that you still feel about the pain that you experience are valid. The emotions that you feel when you remember that pain, all those things are valid. And here's the deal. God doesn't ask us to forget our hurt. But I do think he wants us to acknowledge it. And I know he doesn't want us faking it like it didn't happen. Nor does he desire that we minimize the impact of it. Why? Because you'll never see the purpose of it that way. The more we take the pains and the hurts and the trials and the traumas that we've been through and we dumb them down and we suppress them and we internalize them, we push them down as far as we can, trying to get them to a place of oblivion will cause us to overlook and never see the purpose of why God allowed those things to enter into our lives to begin with. So we've got to stop faking like these things that happened to us didn't and start acknowledging the fact that I got hurt and it really hurt and it messed me up. It really did. It's okay to be messed up. We all are, to some extent. But the story moves on. Now, I'm going to skip over a pretty good chunk of this, but I'm going to give you the context to keep you caught up. Joseph takes Simeon, keeps him in prison. He fills the rest of their bags and says, i tell you what. The rest of y'all go back home. But if you come back, since you claim to have a younger brother, bring him with you. That way I'll know you're not lying about who you are and where you come from. Now, Joseph knows all along. He's playing this little game with his brothers. But he tells them, if you're going to come back, you bring your brother with you. And so they all go back home. They've got their knapsacks full of food. They show back up to Jacob's house. And they tell Jacob, what Jacob's like, what happened? And they were like, oh man, dude, dad, 
you're not going to believe it. Like this wild thing, man. We got to Egypt, and there's this governor there, and we showed up, and dude, he was like rough talking to us when we first got there. Like we were scared to death. He put us all in prison for three days. We didn't know what was going on. We thought he was going to kill us. And all of a sudden, he starts questioning us about our family and where we come from. Do we have a father, and is he alive? And what about any other siblings? And we're like, yeah, man, we, we, we're, all, we're all brothers from the same father. We come from the land of Canaan. And, and we told him that we had a younger brother named Benjamin. And, and Jacob's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You mentioned Benjamin? They're like, yeah, yeah. And he, he told us, he said, man, if y'all ever come back, if you come back and get grain again, you got to bring your younger brother with you. And Jacob's like, yeah, no chance. You're not taking Benjamin with you. See, the last time you clowns went out somewhere and the youngest of you followed up, he never came back. So you're not taking Benjamin because I'm not going through that all over again. But, they're like, but he said if we come back, we got to bring him. So Jacob's like, it's not happening. And so finally Reuben steps in and he's like, him and Judah, some of the older brothers are like, Dad, here's the deal. If we go back, if we have to go back, just put it on us. We'll take, we'll take care of Benjamin. If anything happens to Benjamin, then you can have our sons in his place. Finally, Jacob's going to give in because they get to a point where they have to have food again. They're out. they got to go back to Egypt. So Jacob's like, fine, take Benjamin. If he ends up dead, he ends up dead. we got to take the chance because we got to have food. And so when his brothers first show back up in chapter 42, in this first conversation we saw them have, we get the sense that Joseph sees an opportunity really an opportunity for vengeance, an opportunity for payback. I mean, it has walked right into his lap. He's rough talking his brothers. He has them all arrested. He ends up keeping Simeon locked up. He's perpetuating this fear amongst his brothers. He issues a stern warning to them not to come back without the youngest one, but he provides for them nonetheless. And when they do return, we see things have begun to change inside of Joseph. Now, so we're going to pick up in chapter 43, Starting in verse 16, it says, When Joseph saw Benjamin, so they brought Benjamin with them this time. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. And the man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, It is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we were brought in so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. So Joseph replaced their money the first time. To give you an idea of what's taking place here, they came with money to pay for the food. They offered it to Joseph. Joseph snuck it back in their bags. When they traveled back home, they found the money was still with them, so they thought that he was going to accuse them of stealing, not paying up. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house, spoke with him at the door of the house, and said, Oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks, and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us, and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. And he replied, Peace to you, do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, when he had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they should eat bread there. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about the welfare, and he said, Is, 
is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. For the second time, Joseph's crying. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself, he said, Serve the food. They served him by himself and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. So when they returned back to Joseph's house, you know full well that within Joseph, the bitterness is there, the anger is there, the hatred is there, the thoughts of vindication is there. Joseph is in a prime position to stick it back to his brothers. I mean, it doesn't get any more tailor-made for vengeance than this. But instead, he invited them to his house. Of all places, they should have been most unwelcomed. Here's the second truth in dealing with your pain. Getting back won't get you over. Joseph has a prime opportunity to get back at his brothers. What do we find him doing instead? He invites them over to his house. And not only that, he proceeded to give them water. He let them take a shower. He fed their donkeys. And then he sits this five-star palace-prepared meal in front of them to enjoy in his presence. And he's still crying. Why? Because he's still hurting. But he knows, listen, he knows that a wrong on top of a wrong still makes a wrong. And so as his brother comes back and he sees Benjamin, talks about how his heart grew warm in compassion for his brother, so much so that he has to leave the room and he goes out and he weeps. So Joseph has another cry session because he's just overwhelmed with all the emotions that are still flooding his life over the pain that his family has caused him. But he composes himself, and he comes back in, and he serves his brothers. Why? Because I think God had so worked in his heart that he began to realize that getting back at his brothers won't get him over his pain. And it won't get you over yours either. I understand that our default when we get hit is to hit back. That's like just bred into us. You go into our nursery at any given moment on a Sunday or a Wednesday, you walk over there and you hit a kid, guess what's going to happen? They're going to hit you back. It's like a default reaction just built within us. We get hit, we want to hit back. We get talked about, we want to talk about. It's a default reaction that, that, that we're driven to want to take advantage of an opportunity to exact vengeance or vindication. But listen, that won't heal you. It will only continue to hurt you. Contrary to what culture says, 
Revenge isn't sweet. I'm going to give you a scary reality about revenge. Here's what revenge does. Revenge descends you to the same depths where the evil was found that hurt you. It's a poison that you need to stay away from when it comes to moving past your pain. And Joseph is learning that overcoming the pain of his past, it isn't about burying it. It's about blessing it. And I know that seems so counterintuitive to everything inside of us. But instead of choosing to bury his pain, Joseph has figured out that's not going to work, so he's blessing his pain instead. And God's Word teaches us this very firmly through 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 where he instructs us to do what? To not repay evil for evil or insult for insult, but repay with blessing. Why? Because that is what God has called you to do. Is that an easy thing to do? Absolutely not. It's brutally difficult. Joseph would have understood this. I mean, look at what this man, look at the, look at the lengths that he has gone to to reach out and serve the people that have caused him such deep pain. We cannot do this without supernatural help. You cannot do it. It takes the Spirit of God within us to try and live at this level, to extend forgiveness, to, to have compassion against those that have caused you such hurt and such pain. We cannot do it in and of ourselves. And even in the midst of this, please hear me say this, there still has to be wisdom involved in carrying this out. So don't hear me say for one second that I'm thinking that you should invite a molester over to your house for a dinner to try and make amends. There are extenuating circumstances and special moments where you don't need to have fellowship with the thing that hurts you so wickedly. But even in the midst of that, listen, listen, we can still, even in the midst of those kind of pains, remember, Joseph, let's not minimize what these cats did to Joseph. They were going to murder him. Legitimately, we're going to kill him. But even the midst, Joseph shows us that we can still live in the grace and mercy and the love of God towards those who have acted in such wickedness towards us. It can be done. Our get back is to give back. Not evil for evil or insult for insult, but blessing. You want help moving past your pain? and those that caused it, then if given such an opportunity, heap the grace and the love and the mercy of God upon those who offended you. Will it be difficult to do? Absolutely. But are you going to find it to be liberating when you do it? Absolutely. Might you have to run out the room in the middle of it and find somewhere to bury your face in a box of Kleenexes and then recompose yourself and get back in there and do it again? Absolutely. But God will use it for His glory, for your good. Bless it. Don't bury it. Vengeance is not the way. So please, please, please steer clear of that. The story moves on. After dinner is over, something interesting happens that we could just skip right by if we're not careful. It's a small detail, but it's a significant one, I believe. Genesis chapter 43, I stopped short of this, 
You go back to verse 33. So dinner's over with. Now you have to understand a little bit of the customs here. The details show that when mealtime was taking place, they fed Joseph's brothers in one room, and they fed Joseph in another room. So they didn't eat together. They didn't have the meal together, actually sitting across from one another. Why? Because the Egyptians considered it an abomination to sit in the same room and share a meal with Hebrew people. So Joseph, in an attempt to continue to keep his identity hidden, continues with that custom and eats in a separate room. But after dinner's over with, they come back together as a family. And in verse 33, this is what we read. It says, and they sat before him. So now they're in front of Joseph. They're all together, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. The men looked at one another in amazement. They're like, what in the world? What is this guy doing? Why would he treat us in such a way? And then it flashes back to what the meal was like. It says that portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And so Joseph, I think it's like a subtle jab. In some ways, Joseph, unbeknownst to his brothers, like, man, y'all hated on me when I was the youngest. Now Benjamin's on the scene. He's getting five times as much as the rest of y'all. Forgiveness is on its way. I'm trying to deal with my pain and all. Like, I'm gonna let, I'm gonna, we're going to let it go before it's all over with. But Benjamin getting the good stuff. Y'all going to have some. Benjamin getting like five times as much as y'all. And then afterwards, this is the little detail that I think is worth noticing. It says that they drank and they were married with him. Here's the third truth. You can smile through the tears. After the meal, we see Joseph and his brothers hanging out. They're laughing. They're enjoying each other's company. I want to address this just for a moment because some of you might go digging, but I don't want it to cause you any confusion. When it says that they drank and were merry with him, that word merry, literally in the original language, means that they became intoxicated with one another. So in essence, what we have, if we have Joseph and his brothers getting a little drunk with each other. Now, let me clarify something. Not everything that the Bible reports means that that is what the Bible supports. We have all kinds of things in Scripture that we read about that took place. That doesn't mean God's saying it's okay to do those things. And so they get together, and in all honesty, kick the bottle back a little bit. They're having a good time. They're laughing. They're joking. They're cutting up. But here's the point of it all. For the first time in 20 years, they're all together, and they look like a family. They're acting like brothers that love one another. There's no sense of animosity. There's no jealousy. There's no envy. There's no spite. There's no resentment. And, and not that his brother's would have had any of those things to begin with because they still don't even know that this is Joseph. But Joseph could have very well still had those things. And yet the point to see is that he's with his brothers and he's invited them into his house and they're laughing and kind of having a good time. They've had a meal together. And, and, and the thing is, the wonderful truth about pain is that God can still bring you joy in the presence of it. Joseph is literally sitting in the presence of his pain. And he's merry. He's laughing. 
He was just crying in the other room a second ago, and now he's laughing with his brothers. Where do you think that comes from? A supernatural joy that God has kept restored in his life. I think some of you need to be reminded of that. Quite simply, that the presence of pain doesn't have to mean the absence of joy. Graham will get upset from time to time. Whether that means we've gotten on to him or told him no to something, and you know, it's just de- everything devastates a toddler. And so he'll get upset and he'll start crying. And I hate to see him cry. I don't want to see him cry. I never want to cause him to cry. Sometimes you just have those moments and he'll fall out crying. But there's this little thing that I can do with him, whether he's in the house or he's in his car seat or whatever, when he starts crying, because I hate to hear the sound of it, I'll get in front of him and I'll be like, don't you start laughing. Don't you do it. Don't you. And he, he could be losing it. I mean, just big old crocodile tears. But the moment I start saying, don't you start laughing. You better not start laughing. I told you, if he's going to start laughing. He can't help it. Even though he's got tears streaming down his face, he'll bust out laughing. He's hurt, but he's laughing. Listen, in the same sense, that's how joy works in the presence of your pain that God brings into your life. You may be crying. You may be hurt. You're in the presence of the thing that hurts you the most. You're trying to work through it. You're trying to deal with it. And it hurts like all get out. But God, in a supernatural way amongst his people, can still keep a joy in your life where you smile and laugh through those times. It's such a weird phenomenon. Uh, have, you ever, have you ever been around somebody and seen them literally, they're crying and they're upset, but then they start smiling? It's like a, your face is so afflicted, like it doesn't know what to do. Like it's trying to switch back and forth between one or the other. That's just how it is in these moments, but the fact of the matter is, even though you have tears strolling down your face, you can still produce a smile. Some of you have been so buried up in your pain for so long, the enemy is so very close to just taking your joy away. But he has no right to it. He didn't put it there, so he can't take it from there. That's God's joy in your life. And I think you just need to be reminded. That's why I didn't want to overlook the point. Joseph is progressing out of his pain, but it takes time. It takes time to progress out of things that have hurt us the most. But it's what he's about to learn next. And, and I need you to hear this, please. Maybe if you don't hear anything else. What he's about to learn next is that if you're going to ever fully come out of it, victor has to become a greater identity than victim to you. And so the story's going to move on afterwards. Meal time's over. They get done having their fun. And Joseph's going to do something interesting again. His brothers, he's going to fill up their bags once again. He's going to take care of their money and all their needs. And then he's going to tell his servant, he says, Hey, I want you to take my cup. And I want you to sneak it into Benjamin's bag. And so he does that. And his brothers are going to take off down the road. And as they do so, Serving on the house, he's going to leave, he's going to run chasing after, he's going to say, hey, wait a second, wait a second, come back, come back. And so he stops the brothers, they're like, what's, what's the problem? And the servant of the house is like, my master treats y'all so well and you're going to steal from him like that? And they're like, whoa, whoa, hold on, what you, what you talking about, bro? Like, 
Well, ain't nobody stole nothing. Ain't nobody taken from, from, from your master. And, and he's like, oh, no, no, no. His cup is gone. Y'all don't know how he is about this cup. Like, you can go read back over it sometime in your free time. It's just kind of funny. Like, we all have our cup, right? Like, most of you right now in your cabinet, you got that one cup. Like, that's your cup. Like, that's your go-to cup. Joseph had a cup. He's like, put my cup. He's like, not that. He's like, this cup? No, he's like, no, my cup. He's like, okay, God. Put my cup in their bag. And they run in and they're like, we didn't steal anything. And, and they're so adamant about it. They're like, As a matter of fact, if we stole something, then put us all to death. We're willing to die. We, we swear an oath to it. So they take their backpacks off. Everybody's digging through their pack and they're like, look at it. There's no cup. No, what cup? There's no cup in here. And Benjamin takes his off. He opens his up. Guess what's in there? Joseph's cup. And all of them are like, See, this, this is a problem. What had happened was, I don't know how it got there, but I didn't take your boy's cup. This is a problem because who did daddy say, make sure you do not come back without him? Benjamin. Brothers are about to have a freak out. So they go back to Joseph's house. They get in front of Joseph, and Joseph's like, took my cup. That's what we're doing. Let y'all come in my house, give you food. Let you take a shower. Feed your donkeys. Give you water. Take my cup. We're rolling like that. And Judah speaks up. And he begins to make a defense for his brother Benjamin. He says, I don't know how that happened. But we can't deny the fact that he has your cup. But here's the deal. If you take Benjamin and some kind of harm comes upon him, my father told us before we left, it was all we could do to get him to allow Benjamin to come. And he told us that if something happens to him, if you let something happen to Benjamin and he doesn't come back to me, I will die in my sorrow. And so Judah begins to explain to Joseph. He says, so here's the deal. I, whatever kind of trade we have to make, you leave Benjamin alone and you take me instead. And it's significant. It's significant. I'm going to show you why. you to go back into chapter 37 you would find that after they put Joseph in that pit it was Judah's idea to sell him into slavery and now Judah is the one standing and making a defense for Benjamin and it absolutely overwhelms Joseph to this point chapter 45 verse 1 says then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him he cried make everyone go out from me so no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers and he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it and Joseph said to his brothers I'm Joseph is my father still alive 
But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years. There are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it is not you who sent me here, but God. Here's the last part to all of this when dealing with your pain. When you get to a point, when God brings you to a point where it is all but over with and all but done with, you've got to let forgiveness flow. Joseph has been brought all the way to the edge. He's so he's standing on the threshold of being able to move past the pain that his brothers caused. And for whatever reason why, I don't know why he did it, he continued to drag out this ruse by putting the cup in Benjamin's bag. And I think that in a part of him, he knew that he was fixing to come out of his pain. He knew that, that God was on the edge of bringing him freedom in the places that he hadn't experienced in so long. And maybe, just maybe, there was a side of Joseph that was scared of being free. When you've been in 20 years of particular pain or bondage or whatever it may be, then after that's fixing to come to an end, even freedom can be a little bit intimidating. And I think perhaps in that moment, Joseph tried to drag it out a little bit longer because he wasn't sure how it was going to look. What, what is, what's it going to look like if I actually tell him it's me? What's going to happen if I actually take off the mask? What's going to happen if I actually open things up? What's going to happen if I actually let my emotions flow out? What's going to happen if I actually tell him it's okay you did what you did because I see there's a bigger purpose in it now? It wasn't actually you that did it. It was God that set it up the entire time. But eventually he got to the point where he couldn't hold it in any longer. And listen, I think maybe some of you are at that place tonight where you've held it in for so long where you just can't anymore. Once you get to that point, you've got one more step to take. Let forgiveness flow. The only way you're going to ever completely come out of the pain that you have been in is to forgive. Is to forgive. Forgiveness can hurt. I get it. I've been in some tough places of forgiveness before. You don't have to know my pain. I don't have to know yours. But there's a sovereign God who does. And guess what? He knows a thing or two about pain as well. His pain was that his very creation looked back to him and said, we don't want you. Can you imagine your child looking back up at you saying, Mom, Dad, I, I do not want you in my life. I'd rather do it myself. We as his creation did that very thing to a God who has ever done nothing but love and care for us and desire a relationship with us. So great, as a matter of fact, is his pain. Your scars will heal. He's going to bring healing in some of y'all's lives starting tonight. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to take some time, but you'll work through it. He'll get you through it. He's going to heal your scars. And one day, he's going to make all things new. And guess what? Your scars will be completely gone. But you know who's going to be walking around in heaven bearing his scars for eternity? Jesus. 
That's how deep his pain hits. But you know, you know what his cry was? As that blood flowed down, it was forgiveness. It was him saying, I forgive all of humanity for the pain that you have caused me. I'm letting it go. You want to come out of your pain, you've got to forgive. You've got to get to a place where you can let it flow out. Stop suppressing it all. Stop bottling it up. Stop trying to keep it pushed down, swept underneath the rug. Joseph, Joseph said, I can't control myself anymore. He was, he was losing it. He's, he's crying. So that's a full-grown man who has let go of all of his internalizing, all of his shame. There's no embarrassment in Joseph's life anymore. The Egyptians are outside, and they're like, golly, like it. What is going on inside of that house? Like, we've never heard him like this. Well, he's letting it go. God is liberating him from his hurts and his pains and his sorrows. Guess what? You think Joseph ever forgot it? Nah. Do you think he experienced freedom? Oh my God, you can hear it in his voice. He says, I realize now why. I know you, that you did it, but you didn't do it. God did it. You caused it. But God allowed it. Now your lives are going to be saved. The lives of so many others are going to be saved as a result of it. Listen, here, here's one thing I've learned about my pain. I'm going to finish up with this. We're done. We're done. One of the toughest lessons I've ever had to learn about pain in my life and about hurt in my life is this. It's that hurt doesn't hold on to us. We hold on to it. Jesus has the power and the authority to liberate us from all of our hurts, all of our offenses, all of our traumas, all of our trials. He can do it. The hurt remains so often because we just hold on to it. This is a let go moment for Joseph. Who needs theirs tonight?